Today, I'm very excited to have Tobias Gunther on the show. Tobias has been an entrepreneur and a CEO for almost 20 years. He started four companies, including Tower, a Git desktop client with over 100,000 customers, which he sold in 2021. He's experienced all the highs and lows that are part of this journey from successfully setting a business all the way to failing and experiencing burnout. He's now focused on the human side of business and how we can make our work lives not only successful, but also sustainable and meaningful. Tobias, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So yeah, I'm curious, where did the idea for Tower uh, come from originally and how did that, how did that get started? Yeah, yeah. We, we had a quite kind of a technical web agency back in the day. I think in 2004, I started that way back in the day. And in that time, a different technology emerged that was Git, another developer technology. And there was no, no easy way to handle that, to manage that. And I knew I wanted to switch away from client work more to a product of my own, let's say. And um, let's say we scratched our own itch, I could say, and, and built a product for that. And yeah, the rest is history. I mean, we, we started that in 2010 and did that for over 10 years, actually. Wow. Yeah. Did you build it yourself or did you have a team building it for you? Yeah, yeah. It was a, quite a tricky time um, back then. Uh, we had around 10 people in the, in the web agency and we knew we had to build the thing up again with different people, actually. So we, we, we shrank to three people and started again. And I did part of the coding for that first version. It was, ah, let's say it was tricky and uh, not the best quality. We made it to version 1.0. And uh, just as a teaser, uh, my part got rewritten in the process later on. <laughs> we had better developers. <laughs> Same with me. I think uh, when I started Sendable, I was obviously hacking it together in my spare time. Mm-hmm. So I had a full-time day job. And then at night, I would just try code this thing as quickly as I could. Oh, that's even harder. So I think the first version is always a bit scrappy, you know, if you're building a product. On the side, I, I can't use that excuse. I mean, I had daytime to to work on okay, that. Fair enough. <laughs> quality was better. <laughs> so you sold your business last year. What made you decide to sell after all these years? Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, we started in 2010, as I said, and I sold it in 2021. Mm, actually, for health reasons. So after 10 or 11 years, I just needed a break, and still feel I I do need a break still. So that was 80% of the reason, I would say. 20% after 10 or 11 years, I think there's there's time for something else. But uh, if there had been more uh, gas in the tank still, I think I would have continued for a couple of years. But actually, I think it was a, a good time. The team was ready. I think the, the product and the market was ready. So I think it was a good timing. Yeah. So I saw you went with FE International. Um, I actually spoke to them originally for the Sendable deal. So I'm curious, how was it working with them and how would you describe the process? If you're going through a broker like them, how does it all work? Yeah, I think it's it always depends on your own personality and your own skill set. So if you take me as a as a, a rough example, I'm not a sales person. I'm not a negotiation person. So I desperately needed help on that front or on those fronts, actually. I'm not even a numbers person. So actually, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ill-equipped <laughs> to do something like that, to sell a business. And I knew that. I, I knew I had my strength in, in other departments. So I, need, I knew I needed help. And um, that's, that's one thing that, that a broker can do for you. And um, that was really great, having, having the people from FE support me there. And the other thing is opening up a little bit to the market, right? Not mm. talking to just one interested party, but a couple. 
and they also did that one. So we, I had a couple of conversations in the, during the sale and that's just good f- to know your options actually. Mm. So the, the, the process was very good. I, I would pick them again anytime and not that I have something to sell at the moment, but <laughs> I would in the future. <laughs> So, so for, for other founders listening, would you advise them to kind of go through someone like FE International or do it themselves? I mean, like when would you pick mm. that sort of firm versus trying to approach yeah. uh, potential acquirers yourself? Yeah. I think if you have, if you're really confident that you have all of the skill set that you need for something like that, if you are a numbers guy, if you are a mm. sales type of person, if you are good at negotiating, you can try it yourself. But I would be careful and not overestimate your own abilities in that in that department because, well, if you make a mistake, and that's that's something that you need to keep in mind. It's I've 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 been an entrepreneur for 18 years, and so this is the the culmination of my career so far. <laughs> and if I make a mistake here, right? Because I'm just not used to doing that. I'm not used to doing deals. And the other side, a buyer has done that a couple of times already. Then it would be quite sad after all this time. So I advise to get help. It doesn't have to be an M&O broker like, like FE or a big guy like those, but at least someone who's done the process a couple of times in any capacity. It could be a, a consultant um, if you find somebody good. And that's also possible, yeah. So if you could go back, let's say back to 2010, uh, when mm-hmm. you first started your, your business, what would you have done differently at the start of that journey, would you say? Uh, where shall I begin? <laughs> it's good that you asked me about 2010 and not 2004, because that's, that's whoa, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> 2010, I think I would start earlier building culture, doing team building with my team, because the, the longer I've worked with people or the longer, let's say, I have built companies the more I get that it's all about the people. And this I know this, this sounds a little bit cliche, but it really is. And you're nothing without your team. And the minute you realize that you're, you actually have the opportunity to make it better. And I think that would be the, the, the biggest thing. Mm, from a business perspective, maybe also pick your market very wisely because the market defines a lot of the business you can build, right? The growth trajectory you can take, the team you can build, the kind of work you can or have to do, right? Is it, is it a lot of enterprise sales or is it more, is it B2C, maybe even consumer business? And I didn't know that when I started, all of these things were, were just, uh, I, I discovered them along the way. Yeah, it's the same with me. Like my story, I was basically my, my dad asked me to write some software for him, which eventually became oh. sendable. That's the, that's the story. <laughs> I hadn't really planned to build a social media company. It was just a scheduling yeah. tool, really, like a, a desktop application, uh, which wow. evolved. And then, you know, I think that the market's caught up. So we caught up yeah. to like, you know, I think where Facebook was going and Twitter was going and businesses were using social yeah. media. So I think timing is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, yeah, I think the markets and just knowing who you want to sell to, figuring mm-hmm. out like if you want to sell enterprise, as you said, and mm-hmm. going in the right direction. Because as Sendable grew, we kind of moved more towards agencies, offering white label solutions, which is quite tricky as you grow further on when you kind of mask your product behind like a skin with a white label. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree with you on, on that point. Yeah. Yeah. Is your father an investor then? <laughs> no, he just he was he was running a company in Cape Town, yeah. and he just said, "Can he can he have can I write some software for him to mm-hmm. schedule happy birthday messages to his staff?" Oh, <laughs> so, you know, it sounds very easy, right? A scheduling tool to email yeah. staff happy birthday, but I built it in a way you could plug in any sort of sender. So you could plug in SMS, plug in whatever else came out. And at the time, Facebook was just getting big. You know, it's like 2008. 
Facebook was, was becoming more mainstream with businesses. So I added Facebook in and Twitter came out, so I added Twitter and I kept adding these integrations and eventually I just put it on the web and it started to get traction. So it wasn't like a deliberate business. It was just, you know, like timing was the, was the key thing there. Um, just my dad having the need. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I saw on your website, uh, Tobias.co, in your H1 tag, you say, let's talk about the, the human side of business. When you say human side of business, what do you mean? Hmm. I think that is mostly culture. The, the thing I, I, I try to answer with culture or team building in general, I think in a lot of people's minds, in my experience, there's a, a gap between business, the financial side, and the human side. So you have lots of people that act differently when they're on the job than with their friends. It's almost a little bit like a, I don't know, schizophrenic in a way. <laughs> yeah. And they do things and, and say things that they would never say and do to their friends or with their friends or family. And I think that's that's what I mean by the human side. So acting and speaking like you would with friends and not being someone else in the business world. And I think if that's possible, if that happens, a lot of the problems that we see in today's business world wouldn't be there. I mean, mm. obviously, there would be no yelling bosses because we yell at your friends for once and you have a couple of friends less. And I think that's that's the point, being a decent human human being in business also. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point because we, we actually hired some US employees at Sendable. Mm -hmm. And they would basically say how different our culture was because in, in the US, you have to like put on this facade, almost like a, a face. It's, just like a, it's a work persona versus an out-of-work persona. And they felt that they could actually be themselves for the first time in their, in their entire career. They could let their guard down. So I can totally see where you have a different sort of thing at work versus outside of work. That's so crazy, actually. If you, if you think that through, you have to be two people. I mean, being one person is, is stressful enough. <laughs> I mean, if you have to lead teams, well, it's uh, an added pressure. But if you also have to be different, better, you can't show any vulnerabilities or human sides, how stressful is that? So actually, I, I can only recommend everybody to, <laughs> to be the same person, to be just one person in both your job and, and uh, at home because it's so much easier, actually. And I know a lot of people think different about that. No, no, I, I exclude some of some parts of my personality when I go to work, but I don't think it's, it gets you nowhere. I don't think that if you look at the, the environment you need for, for teams to thrive, Google did a, a wonderful study on, on uh, psychological safety, actually. So I think in 2015 or 16, something like that, they analyzed what's important for high-performing teams, right? Not cozy teams, not cushy teams, but high-performance teams. And it's it's psychological safety. It's it's to do with trust, respect, humility, and all of that. I don't think you get if you're not authentic, if you're, if you're not there as a human being with your colleagues. I think it's easier said than done though, right? Because mm -hmm. I think from my experience, people are fearful. If they let their guard down, they'll be taken advantage of, they won't get that promotion. So how can you build a culture that is kind of warm and, and you know, it creates a culture of trust? People mm. feel like they can be themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think it starts with sitting down and having a conversation, an open conversation with people and having a conversation where you listen more than you talk and where you show up as a whole human being. And I know that's, that's always, a lot of people say that, showing up as a whole human being. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Tricky to define. But I think I think if you approach your job as a leader more from a point of humility, asking yourself that there's a couple of classic questions you can ask yourself, who helped you along your own way, right? If you reflect on that for, for uh, some minutes, 
or if you think about the the people that that helped you achieve success or your teachers, your family and friends, I think that that helps you get in touch with quite a lot of good stuff that happened to your own life in your own life. I think starting conversations in that spirit is a big difference. That's, I think that's a, a good place to start, actually. And, and building relationships with people, right? Not just appearing as a role, as a leader, as a boss, but really having a conversation and, and asking, how are you? How's life? And, and being interested in the response. <laughs> that's maybe the, <laughs> the, the most important thing, really being interested in the response. Yeah. So since, since COVID, obviously, a lot of companies have adopted a remote-first culture. What do you suggest to companies trying to get employees back in the office? Do you think that time is over? And how can you kind of make the semi-remote culture that we're in now work? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I'm a, I'm a remote guy. So I've, okay. <laughs> I've worked fully remotely, I think, for, for six years and before that in a hybrid model for five years, so 11 years actually in a, in a remote setup. So I don't know if I can speak to anything helpful to get people back into an office, <laughs> <laughs> not that part, but the, the, the question about the hybrid model, I think is, is very relevant because it's so, so important for, or it is so prevalent actually in, in the world today. I think a, a helpful perspective on this is I would say there is no hybrid model actually. As soon as you have one person not sitting in the same office with you, you have a remote company. I think very few people understand that. They still see that, well, we have an office and we have a couple of people that come into the office sometimes or not at all, but we have an office. So we're an office company or a co-located team or a hybrid team. I think you can only make the switch successfully if you accept that you are a remote company. Why? Because as soon as one person isn't in the office, you need all of the processes, you need all of the tools, you need all of the rituals and the habits to make that work. Because even that one person needs information, they need to be included in conversations, um, they need to be part of meetings, they need to hear about stuff. And only once you understand that you are a remote company and that you have to adjust everything, then I think it can get better, actually. That's a good point because we actually went hybrid before COVID hit. So we were actually semi-remote back then because we, it came about because we, we kind of outgrew our office. You know, we had space for 30 people, needed more space. So I thought rather than renting another bigger office in central London, let's rather try this hybrid approach. And the mistake I made was that the people in the office, we'd have meetings and they wouldn't be like on their laptops, they'd be in the conference room. So you'd have half the people in the conference room with a camera looking at 10 people, let's say, and half being at home. And the ones at home never actually contributed towards the meetings. They were always so self-conscious mm. being the only ones remote. So we changed it to have everyone at their laptops, even if they're in the office, they'd be on the laptops uh, in a meeting. So you get that better sort of, you know, everyone feels part of, of being almost remote. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a smart move. I think to, to understand that everybody needs to, to adhere to the same rules, let's say like mm. that, maybe. So uh, giving everybody a laptop, even if they're sitting next to each other in an office and you, you have to, to solve the sound problem, then maybe <laughs> but yeah. that's, that's doable. I think that's a big step. Yeah. Because if you don't do that, people will, will inevitably feel left out. There's mm. no way around that. And there's no, no ill intention at work. I think that's that's also uh, important to say, but we're just so habituated to the way we, we work. And, and it's, it's, of course, more natural. If I have somebody sitting next to me, why would I put a second laptop to, to him? Because I can see him, I can hear him, I can... It's it's fine for me. So why would we do that? But it's 
so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but there are a lot of things like that. Yeah, yeah definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as, as Sendable grew, as you mentioned before, we came on, on air, uh, we had around 50 employees when I sold the company. And I saw things breaking down you know, as we grew. Like as a founder, leading a bigger company is, is quite a challenge. Things like communication broke down, we had silos developing. So I was focused more on the, on the mission and vision. And then like now with my new company, I'm trying to keep it as lean, as, as small as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like why is it that small companies are kind of more, often more beautiful places to work mm. as opposed to bigger, sort of larger scale apps? Let me say that it's, it's so interesting to hear you coming out of a quite a big company, actually, 50 people, and then feeling the the desire to to create something small. I, I, <laughs> I applaud to, to that. <laughs> uh, that's, I think that's a very nice thing to do. Well, I think the absence of politics, I think, is a big one. It's really much more about actually the the goal you have in mind. It's it's not about the politics. You don't have to 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 keep anything in mind in that regard. You have to, from a founder perspective, I think having control over who you work with, who you hire, down to the last person. Right? If you have five people or ten people, you can really handpick everybody, everybody. And starting with 20, 30, 40, 50 people, that's not going to happen anymore. And I, I always thought that is so beautiful about a small company to be really able to handpick people and say, well, I want to work with these people. And I have to spend a lot of time with them, uh, so it better be a good fit. <laughs> and being able to make that selection, I thought that was a, a big gift. And Maybe lastly, I don't know, a lot of creative leeway, actually. Uh, as I said, it's more about the work than about politics or, or the, or maybe politics is too negative. Maybe there's not so much structure that you have to build up and maintain. So you can really concentrate on what you want to do. You want to build something, you want to bring something into the world. And that's really 90% of your work or your time goes into that. And I always thought that's, that's a beautiful way to work. Yeah, I think for me, we just kind of got too big. It was like almost like it outgrew the founder of the company where I couldn't get my hands dirty anymore. So I couldn't like go and A-B test a new landing page or release some code, you know. Uh, so I was going through people and teams of people. So it was always like how to write documents, get approval, try to influence their decision making because I'd given so much autonomy. I think you have to give autonomy as you scale. So I would, I would try to like plant seeds, but I couldn't actually go in there and make the change because then you're undermining people. So I think there's a time when it's natural for a founder to step out because, you know, as a founder, I think your value is definitely in the early stages or in the smaller teams where you can just um, maybe experiment more, try things, kind of mold, mold the clay into what you want to kind of, how you want it to, to look at the end. Whereas when you, when you're bigger, you don't really have all the answers. You, you can't always know how it's going to work. So, and if, if you get in there and try experiment, you kind of frowned upon by the team. So I, I definitely think there is, there is value to be had in smaller companies, but I think in bigger companies too, it just needs a different kind of leader. It's a leader who's, who's happy to operate, happy to take a step back, give a direction, and then help the team just flourish, which can be rewarding too, I think. you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes down to what you want to do with your life and, and with, your, with your work time, actually. So and I, as you began to, to elaborate on how you did it with uh, Sendable, I want to ask if you missed getting your hands dirty and you answered that <laughs> while you spoke. So I think that also speaks to, to how you want to work, right? You want to be in the topic, not leading from very, 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 very high above. Yeah. 
I think that that's kind of why I want to keep the next one as lean as possible and just like outsource projects mm-hmm. more than hire a big team and go through all the people issues and that kind of thing, <laughs> but just keep it as lean as possible. So, you know, I have more control over what I want to build and, you know, I, I might build a few things, uh, but I think for the next one, I, I won't wait 13 years to sell. I think I'll try to <laughs> build and sell within maybe five years or something, you know. <laughs> uh, did you have a size in mind? I mean, people wise, do you want to be below five or below 10 or below 50, I guess. <laughs> um, that's a good question. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't limit it. I wouldn't limit the size of the team. I would probably just create a culture that allows everyone to be individual contributors potentially. So have, have more of a flat structure where everyone is contributing. Everyone knows where we're going, but not have to have just that such, I guess, like so many operational processes and things to get things done. I think I saw over time, we were, as a result of us growing so big, we couldn't be as innovative as some of the smaller competitors in the space. So we had to kind of, kind of, you know, I don't know, it took a long time to make things happen as you get past 50 people. So I want to just be able to still be sort of agile, try things, put things out there, get feedback from users and iterate quickly. Because I think, I think that was like the biggest frustration for me running a bigger company, just the speed of, of seeing change, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I what I meant with structure and the the overhead actually you you have and yeah. I think there's there's no real way around that so I I don't think that bigger companies having overhead and bigger structures it's not a it's not a mistake that leaders make there you just need that that changes everything actually and you you, you need to know if you want to do that mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of it comes down to to what you want as a founder and where you want to go and as you said it and I think that's a that's an important thing the the company outgrows you sometimes and having the wisdom to to see that and to be to be aware of that I think that's a that's a good quality I admire that yeah I think if you, if you look at, at at legacy you know if you, if you start a mm. business you wanted to have a legacy they, they, obviously you have to be sort of unselfish at, at a certain stage where you realize that maybe the founder's journey comes to an end where he or she has done the job of kind of starting the company, getting off the ground, delegating everything. And now it's time to hand it over to a different kind of CEO or operator. So I think, I think that, that took a long time for me to realize because I hadn't planned to ever sell the business. I'd always planned to just grow it, you know, for 30 years, whatever it took. But, you know, as we, I think like during COVID, we were very lucky. Like COVID gave us this, this amazing growth as a result of all these businesses going into social. So the company, we hired like 13 people that year. And then suddenly I felt like I was so pushed, pushed so far away from what I enjoyed doing. So just a, a question for you. So on the show, we like to reflect on things we did that were unscalable that helped us grow in the long term. What would you say you did in your career that helped to grow your company? Maybe things that weren't that scalable that helped to propel you forward. Yeah, I think it comes back to to people and, and working with people. And maybe one of the, the, the least scalable things I did and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of is actually taking a long time to hire people, being very, I want to say picky, but maybe there's a more beautiful word out there, taking a long time, taking your time actually with a candidate and putting a lot of thought into the, the hiring process, just as an example. Um, so you couldn't, you couldn't apply by sending us a CV. We didn't accept that. A standard CV is just not accepted. We didn't read that. So if you wanted to apply, you had to take the time and, and hat tip actually to everybody who did that. Uh, you had to take the time to, to answer a couple of questions on, on our website. Seven questions, I think. And I know 
it took everybody half an hour to an hour to write that because it was not the standard CV questions. You really, something like, what do you enjoy about your work and what do you not like? What do you, do you want to stay for 10 years at this company? What would we have to provide? Things like that. You, you can't copy paste that. You, you just can't. So people had to take the time to, to reflect. Some people even said it was a, a long process, but I'm grateful for that reflection, actually. So they, they say thank you for, for being able to apply. And of course, we got, on the other hand, on the other side, got a lot of interesting data about them. We saw if they were able to write well, being a remote company, that's, that's very important. How they communicated in general, what was important to them, a sneak peek into their values as people and how they relate to people, if team is something they, they care about, all of that. And I think taking the time to have a good hiring process, taking the time to talk to people like the big companies would do. A friend of mine is, is currently interviewing with one of the, the big tech companies and, and I'm blown away because it's a, a bazillion interviews. Yeah. Of course, it's we can't do that as small companies, yeah. but you can get unreasonably close to that and really pick people that you believe in, that you want to work with, that you think the rest of the team will also enjoy working with. I mean, it's, it's not just about me. I, I'm aware of that. Where that person is able to thrive, actually, is, is that a, can I provide an environment for, for that person to thrive? So I think not being scalable in a, in a people in a hiring sense is, is a good thing, I guess. Yeah. And of course, working with people in general, maybe offering more of your time as a founder, as a leader, more than others do it. I think when I look back at my leadership experience, we took one-on-ones, for example, pretty seriously. And I know it's, it's not a big secret. One-on-ones are, are out there for, for quite a while. But in small companies, it's not that common and they're often not done so well, let's say it like that. And I knew this was important for me because I, I wanted to go back to that relationship building stuff and, and really be able to help, to support and build a relationship with every person. Also, an incredibly non-scalable, unscalable thing to do. What about you and, 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 and Incendable? Yeah, with the hiring, I was still involved in every interview. So every single person that we hired, the last stage is always with me. But we also, if someone didn't submit a cover letter, we would just ignore them. You know, we would obviously get back to them and say, sorry. Because we had so many applicants, we couldn't afford to not take somebody who really wanted the job. So we expected to see a cover letter. People send in videos these days as well, which is amazing. It you know, always gets your attention. And we would always like in our, in our job descriptions or job ads, at the end of every job, job description, you would see the names of the team that they'd be joining. So we'd say, explain why you want to work with Veronica, Nico, and whoever it was, uh, and join our marketing team, for example. And they'd have to write to the people in the team as to why they want to join them. So that, that, that took them doing research on who was in the team, kind of understanding who they were, looking at the culture a bit more. So we, so we knew every, every um, sort of cover letter we got took time to write. It was meaningful. So it really helped us filter out the good ones from the bad ones. Yeah. And then, as I said, just in the last round, um, I actually had this um, sort of playbook that I used. So I, I took all the, the values of the company and created like a matrix. And I'd rate the applicants you know, according to the values of the company on a matrix. So if, if I had like five applicants in the final round, I was looking at cultural fit always. So I would I'd rate those last few applicants, see who had the best cultural fit, who aligned with the values more, and they would normally get the job. So I had this like proper process to figure it out. 
Uh, so I agree with you, like, you know, hiring is one of the most important things you can do as a founder or CEO. And obviously over the years, we, we had made quite a few mistakes in hiring. So I learned, I learned the hard way and I bought these systems and put these things in place to make sure we didn't make those mistakes again. Yeah. 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 Me too, actually. So I, I don't want it to sound that <laughs> I got it from, from the beginning. I, I made so many mistakes and, and I think these are the mistakes that hurt the most, at least in my experience or, or for me. So I was pretty eager to, to correct that and to become better at that. It really in the interest of, of everybody, of myself, because I had to work with those people, with other people on the team, because they also would work with them. And for an applicant, I mean, if, if I'm doing a poor job of, of screening them, and, and picking the wrong person, that's my fault. And if they can't thrive here, ah, I owe them time. <laughs> and and that's, it's hard to pay back. <laughs> Are there any books that have kind of informed your thinking on culture and remote working over the years? I like The Culture Code. I think it's Daniel Coyle, if I'm right, very much. He talks uh, also a lot about trust um, and what it takes to build trust. And probably not as a big secret, but Frederic Laloux, Reinventing Organizations, is, uh, I think, one of the classics and that, that just makes you jump out of your chair and, and want to change everything in your company. He doesn't say how it's done. That's, that's a problem with those books. But at least you're, you're fired up to make a better culture and to, you, can, you can see what's possible out there. And I think that's, that's very motivating. Finding your way then is a little bit tricky often, but at least knowing there's a way and other people are doing it that's incredibly motivating, I think. Uh, so before we go, obviously, you've just sold your company a year and a half ago, I guess now. What are you doing now? And uh, where can people find you online? I am actually in the process of writing a book about team building and um, company culture. It's going to be not a beautiful book, <laughs> not something like, a, like the ones from Frederick Laloux and, and Daniel Coyle, not beautiful in, in, in that. It's going to be very, very practical. It's, it's going to lay out a path um, in very practical manner. So step one, step two, step three, to really help people build culture, right? Mm. The motivation part, I think, is sufficiently done by other people, but I think the practical part, how to, how to really do that, I think there's still a lack in that, and that's, that's uh, something I want to do. I'm uh, testing it currently with a couple of poor teams. They're everybody's still alive and and, and well, so it's, it seems to it seems to work fine. <laughs> That's what I'm doing at the moment. It, I think it will take a, a couple of months more to, until that is. But Tobias.co, Tobias.co. That's that's where people can reach me. Also on on Twitter at Tobias is is a good place. And yeah, if anybody wants to stay in touch or discuss culture and building. I'm really, I really mean this. I'm, I'm really interested in getting into conversations with people. Um, then then uh, get in touch, uh, Tobias.co and at Tobias on Twitter. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tobias. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye, Gavin. Thank you.